Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. Today we're going to learn about preventive neuroradiology. You might ask, what is that? Well, we will answer that question and how it can help us keep our brains healthy. So, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Cyrus Raji. He is a physician and a PhD and a neuroradiology clinical fellow at UCSF Department of Radiology and Bioimaging. He completed his combined MD and PhD at the NAH-funded Medical Science Training Program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Scientist Training Program. In the University School of Medicine in 2010. He then conducted a postdoc scholarship in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh before completing a transitional medical internship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Mercy Hospital from 2011 through 12. Following this, he completed a four year diagnostic radiology resident at UCSA. He's funded his Ph.D. research as a doctoral fellow through the American Heart Association and as a medical student by the Radiological Society of North America. His research interests revolve around applying multimodal structural and functional neuroimaging to neuropsychiatric disorders and head trauma. He's published over 30 peer review papers on these topics in journals such as Neurology, Human Brain Mapping, the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, and the American Journal of Neuroradiology. Welcome, Dr. Ragey. Welcome to our show. Thank you for that kind introduction, and thank you for having me. Well, can you tell us what preventive neuroradiology is? Of course. The term preventive neuroradiology is applied specifically to brain aging and cognitive decline. And so as individuals get older, they tend to experience problems with memory or focus or attention. And these are are often concerning for Alzheimer's disease. But what I've tried to talk about with preventative neuroradiology is the concept that there are multiple possible mechanisms to reduce cognition as we get older. And these are factors that we can track with neuroimaging. And if we can identify these factors, then we're more likely to intervene, uh, correctly diagnose individuals and, and treat them. Uh, and so to do that, we need to have a series of structural and functional tools that we could measure, and that's what preventative neuroradiology seeks to revolve around. So are you saying through neuroradiology you can assess the state of the brain and changes in it and how we might be progressing toward various diseases such as Alzheimer's or multi-infarct dementia, et cetera? That's not only the focus of research, but it's also something that we can identify clinically. So, for example, if an individual is thought to have cognitive decline, we can use brain imaging to identify whether or not vascular disease is a main driving force, whether there may be more likely a component of Alzheimer's disease, or even drug and alcohol use can have negative effects on the brain that we can also identify. So we can also apply that clinically as well. And we can improve that with the findings that we're getting from our research, too. 
So are you, do you also study uh, the brain connections and the uh, connection of the various neurons? Correct. So one of the areas of the research we're doing at UCSF is on, uh, on connectomes. Connectomes are maps that we can see on imaging that describe the neural wiring of the brain. And this is an important factor to examine because changes in connectomes can happen very early in the course of different diseases. And so they can happen with subtle brain trauma. It can occur very early in the course of Alzheimer's disease. And by understanding these connectome changes, we can have more sensitive biomarkers of disease progression that we can then use to improve outcomes in patients. So you not only measure how these uh, tell us the status of somebody's brain, you've done a lot of research as to what some of the preventive measures would be, as well as some of the things that would uh, progress, increase the progression toward a brain disease. Correct. So, for example, a lot of my research over the last 10 years has looked at lifestyle factors in the brain and the concept that positive lifestyle factors are actually correlated with larger gray matter volumes, so better neuronal health. Or conversely, negative lifestyle factors such as obesity uh, can be correlated to reduced brain volumes and thus an increased risk of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And that's important because these are addressable lifestyle factors that we can then uh, track with neuroimaging. So what are some of the lifestyle factors that impact uh, progression toward dementia in the United States as well as throughout the world? So a lot of this work was actually based on epidemiological data done by Deborah Barnes and Christine Yaffe at UCSF in the Department of Psychiatry, and they published a paper in the journal Lancet in 2011 where they found that in the United States, there were seven risk factors that influenced the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And, uh, you know, these risk factors uh, in the U.S. are uh, physical inactivity, depression, uh, smoking, midlife high blood pressure, midlife obesity, low education, and diabetes. Uh, and then globally, it's the same uh, risk factors, but they have different weightings. So in the United States, the most powerful risk factor from a lifestyle perspective was lack of physical activity, whereas globally, it was low education. Um, so that's very important because at the same time that paper came out, I had published a study showing that uh, obesity is correlated to loss of gray matter volumes in the frontal lobes and temporal lobes, areas that have important roles in our cognition. And conversely, increasing physical activity is correlated to larger gray matter volumes in those same areas, including the hippocampus. And these papers have been replicated in their findings by other groups, uh, you know, several hundred times uh, since then in the last six or seven years. And that's important because it ties the epidemiological data that Dr. Yaffe identified nicely to the imaging changes that I've observed in similar large cohorts. Well, it's interesting that in different uh, parts of the world that these risk factors would have different weight. I mean, in, uh, low education throughout the world and other di different risk factors in the U.S., such as inactivity, etc. So are you saying we have a fat belly, we have a small brain? Well, I think that the relationship between obesity and brain volume is actually quite complicated. Uh, the most commonly proposed mechanism for why there's reduced brain volumes in such individuals is because there's a lot of inflammatory molecules that are released from adipose tissue. And so 
large amounts of adipose tissue act as a pro-inflammatory structure in the body. And these uh, inflammatory cytokines, interleukins, like IL-2 and IL-6, or tumor necrosis factor, these can uh, have deleterious effects on neuronal uh, function and thus structure over time. Um, by the same token, if individuals are exercising, specifically engaging in aerobic physical activity, uh, the, uh, there's secretion in the brain of a molecule called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor. And this can actually promote uh, axonal uh, sprouting and, and dendrite formation, as well as uh, improved neuronal structure and larger, uh, more neurons, so neurogenesis, actually, in areas like the hippocampus. And so there's a molecular basis for these lifestyle factors, uh, and with MRI, we can actually track those results. And so um, I think the mechanisms are pretty complicated, but the underlying behaviors on which some of those mechanisms are based are, are comparatively simple. So how much exercise do we need to improve our brain health or cognitive health? One of the things I looked at in my studies uh, was to determine the actual amount of, of physical activity. And so there were several different ways this was done. In one paper, we found that walking a mile a day uh, had a correlation to increased gray matter volumes uh, in cognitively normal individuals as well as individuals with mild cognitive impairment uh, and Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, and if you wanted to look at it from the standpoint of total physical activity, so from a variety of physical activities, uh, individuals who burned an extra 500 calories per day from any type of physical activity uh, that was based on leisure activity actually had 5% more gray matter volume in the brain than individuals who were very sedentary. Um, so I think that uh, the range of physical activity, even in the elderly population, is pretty moderate. Um, these are not individuals who have to be running, you know, marathons regularly or doing very intensive uh, short-term uh, activities. Uh, and these can also be incorporated into leisure activities from, um, you know, uh, gardening to ballroom dancing uh, to, uh, you know, regular types of exercise in the gymnasium. So is there a dose response, meaning the more exercise you do, the better it is for your brain health? That would be what my, uh, what my research has suggested. And so, you know, individuals who walked an extra mile a day uh, had this increased volumes in the hippocampus and precuneus. Uh, but, you know, uh, if there was double that amount, there was no additional uh, benefit. So at some point, the effect plateaus. But there does seem to be a minimum amount of physical activity that's required to obtain this effect. Um, and so there are different ways to quantify that. And the actual amount of walking distance is one way, and then the caloric uh, expenditure is another way because, again, uh, you know, not every individual necessarily enjoys walking as their main physical activity. That's why we looked at caloric burn from multiple different physical activities. So a lot of researchers have recommended, uh, you know, relaxed um, exercise with intermittent high-intensity exercise. Is that the best way to go? That's been a focus of recent research that's been coming out over the past couple of years, and I think that that's, uh, that's definitely something that we could examine in larger trials. But I also think that uh, most of the activities that we've done have actually focused on, on walking and kind of uh, lighter activities. I think one of the biggest issues one has to consider is the fact that uh, we don't want individuals who are 
elderly to be participating in activities that could be potentially uh, contraindicated based on their other comorbidities like heart disease or pulmonary disease. Okay, so an active lifestyle, I understand, improves the gray matter in Alzheimer's and in mild cognitive impairment, but does it reverse the symptoms or just slows the progression of the disease? So in individuals who are already cognitively normal, there is a preventative effect. Uh, in individuals who already have the disease, it does reduce the, the slope of decline, uh, but it doesn't totally reverse the symptoms. Uh, so I think that's the main difference. And I think that's why I talk about the preventative aspects of this science, because the earlier we can intervene uh, and, and uh, apply these strategies, the more successful they're likely to be. And so interesting thing about exercise, as you say, it generates uh, BDNF, uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and that also helps with depression. And apparently it, this a substance helps sprout new connections in the brain. So that's kind of exciting. So let's get to prevention. And what are some of the preventive things we can do to stay with Alzheimer's? What has your research shown? I think the three biggest factors have been to keep body mass index below 30. Uh, what we found in our obesity data is that the uh, highest magnitude of brain atrophy correlates to a body mass index of greater than 30. Individuals who are overweight, so a BMI of a 25 to 29.9, they have brain atrophy, but it's of a mild degree of magnitude uh, compared to individuals who are obese. Um, so while being overweight is not ideal, uh, it doesn't have nearly the burden of brain atrophy that obesity has. Uh, so I think that that's an important factor there. In terms of physical activity, I think uh, walking uh, a mile a day or else doing a combination of leisure physical activities that increases caloric output by about 500 calories uh, can also have beneficial effects. The third factor that we have not discussed but we've also studied has been uh, consumption of, of fish. Uh, so consumption of baked uh, or broiled fish once a week was correlated in one of our studies to be related to larger gray matter volumes, even when statistically accounting for other lifestyle factors such as obesity or baseline physical activity or age or gender. Uh, and so that, those are the kind of three main recommendations that I can summarize from all of the research that we've been publishing uh, over the last several years. Uh, is it a problem if the fish has mercury in it? Well, the type of fish that we found to be the most correlated was baked or broiled salmon, typically, um, whereas mercury tends to be correlated more to mackerel or swordfish. Um, so I do think that the level of mercury definitely is important because actually one of the preventable causes of cognitive decline are heavy metals, uh, of which mercury is one example. So I think that when individuals are getting assessed for cognitive decline, uh, assessment for heavy metals should be part of their uh, serum assessment. Um, but in our particular study, we didn't look at the high mercury uh, fish consumption. And uh, I suspect that if we did, we would find that they didn't have a benefit to the brain. Uh, but, you know, baked or broiled uh, salmon uh, tends to, in our studies, have a correlative benefit. What about... Uh Farm-raised versus wild-raised salmon, is there a difference? We didn't examine that difference in part because when our data was collected in our particular cohort, there wasn't really a distinction made between uh, farm-raised versus, you know, the so-called organic foods. 
Um, that tended to come much later, kind of in the early to mid-2000s, and most of the data that we had were based on cohorts um, taken from the 90s. Uh, and that's one caveat to the work that we've done, because your average individual who was 70 or 75 years old in 1998 isn't the same as your average individual who's 75 years old today. Um, individuals who tend to live longer now tend to follow a lot of a healthier lifestyle and have healthier habits, and so uh, they, they're kind of in better health than individuals who are older 20 years ago when these factors either weren't as well understood or as well applied in our society. Well, I do remember some functional medicine experts saying that farmed salmon was one of the worst things we could eat. Um, so it's just, that's always gotten my attention. Uh, talking about toxins, what is the effect of alcohol and drugs? Well, alcohol consumption is correlated specifically to atrophy of the uh, posterior portion of the brain called the cerebellum. And the cerebellum functions not just in the coordination of movement, as it's historically been known, but also it is thought to integrate cognitive function through a midline structure called the vermis. And so if you have uh, alcohol consumption as part of the patient's history, there's a higher likelihood that they are going to have um, uh, atrophy in the cerebellum. Now, now, this is important for a couple of reasons. One is because it's important not to mistake these individuals as having Alzheimer's disease. Um, because they have a modifiable cause of their cognitive decline, and uh, having them diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease on those drugs will not be helpful. Um, and I think the other reason it's important, too, is because, you know, the cerebellum is uh, also important in cognitive function throughout the brain. Cerebellum is literally Latin for, for little brain. Uh, it actually has the most number of neurons as a unit area than any other part of the brain. And so tracking the cerebellum as part of a, you know assessment of, of brain volumes uh, is actually very important as a result. Uh, so, um, okay. So are you saying for somebody that is, uh, has cognitive decline due to alcohol, that if they stop the alcohol, they might regenerate uh, important parts of their brain? Well, there's no, there's no guarantee that stopping the alcohol uh, will necessarily lead to a regeneration in the cerebellum, um, but at the very least, it'll prevent additional shrinkage. Uh, and so that's, a, that's actually a key point. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, the volume loss and atrophy is progressive, uh, and it keeps happening. Um, but in factors that are uh, addressable, if we stop that, those factors from occurring, whether it's vascular disease or whether it's uh, alcohol use, you may not regenerate those parts of the brain that have already been lost, but you, you will not experience a continued progression of, of volume loss. And that's the difference between a neurodegenerative disorder like Alzheimer's disease and another cause of cognitive decline like vascular disease or alcohol use. So this is where your research is extremely important. You can kind of identify which of these processes is going on so we know if there's, what steps might have the biggest impact, at least in slowing down the progression. Correct. So if an individual is uh, evaluated for a cognitive decline and, you know, they get, uh, they get scanned with an MRI, and we can measure the volumes of different brain structures. Um, and there are different, you know, tools out there. Um, you know, one example is a software program called NeuroQuant, 
uh, at UCLA where I did a lot of my research. We were using a software program called NeuroReader. Uh, they're both FDA cleared. We had very good experience with NeuroReader at, at UCLA. And what we find is that if individuals have uh, volume loss in the hippocampus, especially if that volume loss is progressive over multiple scans, we can say with reasonable confidence that that patient uh, may have Alzheimer's disease. But uh, if somebody comes in with, uh, you know, volume loss and cognitive decline, but it's not happening in the hippocampus, but in other brain regions, then we can hunt for other causes that might be uh, addressable, like vascular disease or alcohol use. And this is not typically how MRI scans are assessed. Historically, they've been used to rule out large strokes or tumors that might be causing cognitive decline. But with these newer tools of quantification, we have the ability to extract more useful information out of uh, of these scans. That's pretty exciting. Uh, While we're on the topic of toxins, what about medications? Do any medications contribute to cognitive decline? Right. So actually going back to the cerebellum example, um, you know, alcohol is one factor, but also uh, anticonvulsants like, uh, you know, phenytoin are, are, are well known to be related to cerebellar atrophy. Um, at the same time, use of uh, illicit drugs can be also correlated with brain atrophy. Um, and there are different drugs that we can talk about, but, you know, uh, and also acutely, uh, drug intoxication can lead to toxicity in the white matter as well, uh, which can also lead to acute cognitive decline too. Um, so a variety of drugs in the brain can act like toxins that can have these abnormal effects uh, that can cause quite a bit of damage. And so um, that's a very important factor to consider. What about the effect of statins? You know, statins have been pretty controversial because originally they were thought to be uh, an important aspect of Alzheimer's prevention uh, for uh, reducing the vascular effects. Um, but then there have been other papers published showing that uh, aggressive statin therapy can be related to uh, brain atrophy. Um, uh, so it's hard to really say what's going on because on the one hand, you can say, well, maybe the statins are, are a problem. But on the other hand, you can say, well, if the reason the statins are being applied are because the patient already has a really bad vascular disease that could be causing the brain atrophy anyway, then how do you separate that confounder? Um, So I would say that the data there are still very unclear. What about the various medications that uh, adversely affect the gut? Because there seems to be a very close connection between our guts and our brain. I mean, some experts would say that if you've got a permeable intestinal barrier, that you might have a permeable brain barrier. So in particular, what about the antacids and the NSAIDs? Do they have any effect? Well, I, I think that the big role of the microbiome that you're talking about relates strongly to obesity, uh, and there is a correlation between abnormal microbiomes and uh, type 2 diabetes and obesity. So, uh, you know, certain antibiotics can definitely disrupt uh, the microbiome, which is why judicious prescription of any of these medications becomes very important. But then how does the microbiome uh, relate to Alzheimer's disease? Well, it could be... um, 
you know, a disruption of that homeostatic mechanism could lead to more inflammation. Um, but I think the role in terms of connecting to obesity is very interesting because if somebody who is obese is more likely to have an abnormal microbiome uh, and that person secondarily has brain atrophy due to this chronic inflammation, then the question you have to ask is what comes first? Is it the disruptive microbiome, the obesity, uh, or in some cases, uh, different time courses of each? And so I think, um, you know, monitoring the health of the microbiome and addressing that will be very important, not only in uh, possibly preventing obesity, but also these kind of chronic pro-inflammatory states that could eventually contribute to cognitive decline. So any inflammation that's going on in the gut, it can get into the brain? Well, if there's inflammation in the gut uh, and there's a pro-inflammatory state in the entire body, over the long term, that does have an effect on the brain. And that is something that uh, individuals in different research groups are trying to track now with specific inflammatory tracers in the brain. So there are certain pet tracers that, that we're trying to develop in the field to look at inflammation in the brain to see if we can better understand this. Uh, and once we have those markers established, then we'll have a better answer in terms of what the exact time course is, what the magnitude of inflammation is, and then what has to happen for there to be long-lasting brain dysfunction. Yeah, because um, I have heard Dr. Permutter say that uh, NSs can increase the risk for dementia by like 40%, and uh, so there is some controversy out there, and we need more data. Uh, we're coming close to a break now, but I'd like to point out that Dr. Bredesen, whose talk was on on August 18th, he pointed out that toxin exposure is one of the main is a main cause of Alzheimer's disease, in addition to many other factors. He adds this is one of the contributing factors, or one of the specific types. So we're coming to a break now, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you heard of nutritional balancing? Your body's biochemistry affects the mental, physical, and emotional aspects of your life. Many of the diseases we face are related to an imbalance of the mind, body, and spirit. 
find out how to get everything back in line when you tune in to Healing Treasures of Wisdom with host Daniel Solomon. Learn how to heal yourself and your family every week. Listen Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, and I have Dr. Cyrus Raji here from the University of California, San Francisco. And we're talking about brain health, and he's using the tool of neuroradiology, where he's looking at uh, a picture of what's going on inside our brain. We can assess, uh, assess how what our progression toward any disease is. And he's done a lot of research on various preventive factors, as well as factors that increase the progression toward, um, you know, cognitive decline. So welcome back. Um, now, diabetes is a risk factor for um, uh, cognitive decline. Can you discuss the connection? Well, some of the earliest papers linking uh, vascular disease to uh, Alzheimer's disease came from diabetes because in type 2 diabetes, um, which is the most common form of diabetes experienced by individuals who are uh, obese, there is an overabundance of, of insulin in the body. Um, and that's because the actual insulin receptors are not as functional as they are in normal health. And so there's this compensatory hypersecretion of insulin in the body. And insulin is degraded by an enzyme called IDE, or insulin-degrading enzyme. Uh, interestingly enough, IDE also uh, degrades amyloid in the brain. But that wasn't discovered until later. Otherwise, it would have been called ADE or amyloid degrading enzyme. Um, and I think the most accurate title would be insulin and amyloid degradation. Now, when faced with these two um, products to degrade, what happens is the IDE focuses on degrading the insulin more than the amyloid. And so there's a competitive inhibition of IDE that happens in type 2 diabetes. And so one hypothesis of how diabetes affects Alzheimer's risk is that by being unable to degrade the amyloid because it's degrading insulin, then there's a buildup of amyloid in the brains of these individuals, and that could increase the risk for Alzheimer's as a result. Um, some of the problems with this theory is that, for one thing, amyloid does not correlate to loss of synapses and neurons as strongly as tau, which is the other molecular biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and the other issue, too, is that um, the actual symptoms of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's are more closely correlated to tau than with amyloid. And then I think the other factor that has to be understood is that uh, drugs that have been targeted towards amyloid 
haven't yet shown benefit in, in actually reversing the cognitive decline associated with the disorder. Uh, but there's optimism that if we can target tau, um, that might be more successful. And actually, there have been uh, several PET radio tracers that have been invented in the last several years for which they can selectively bound to tau and then light up the brain. But at this point, they're being used for research, and they haven't been formally applied clinically. Yes, I understand also that um, when you control for fat, that diabetes is not such a risk factor, that it, maybe fat is the confounding factor that is the main contributor to, towards cognitive decline? Correct, and that's what we found. You know, when I initially did this research, my hypothesis was that diabetes would be a main factor, and we found that to be the case, but then we controlled for body mass index that ended up accounting for all of the effects. Uh, that diabetes was then uh, rendering. And so since individuals who are obese are more likely to have diabetes, um, then what we're really detecting is an effect of the obesity as well. But I think uh, the diabetes story is important because that was the initial conception of how uh, these issues could all be related. And, and that was where all of the earlier papers were published. Um, I do remember reading that each time your blood sugar go- drops low or it gets very high, it is an insult to the brain. So Right. Know. So um, hypoglycemia can actually lead to, to, you know, comas. And those can cause, you know, abnormalities in the brain that can mimic trauma or demyelination. And, and then oftentimes to know if the patient, you know, has this problem, you have to look at their blood glucose and see if that was abnormally low. Um, so, for instance, if somebody's blood glucose drops to, uh, you know, um, 50, I mean, that could definitely happen. But conversely, um, if their blood glucose rises too high, uh, like 200 or above, uh, that's also problematic as well. Now, you, one thing I recall you saying is that sleep apnea is, has a correlation to brain atrophy because it affects the lymphatic cleaning system of the brain. Right. So actually, it was discovered only about two years ago now, I believe, that the brain has the ability to essentially clean itself um, in a sort of CSF uh, accelerated bath uh, that tracks through uh, a newly discovered part of the brain called the lymphatic system. And when individuals um, don't gain enough sleep, the lymphatic system doesn't function as well, probably because it is programmed on a circadian rhythm. And uh, disruptions of that rhythm can then disrupt the uh, lymphatic system. But then if the lymphatic system can't uh, clean out different toxins, uh, that's important because one of the things that the lymphatic system clears from the brain is amyloid. Uh, And so if that can't happen, then the amyloid can also build up and potentially be part of this amyloid tau cascade that's been the main hypothesis of Alzheimer's for many years now. Um, And so I think that that's one of the main reasons why the lymphatic system has become of great interest. And actually, there have been studies showing that we can image the lymphatic system with MRI scans. Um, those have mostly been applied for research, but the idea is if we can do this in the future, that might be another biomarker that we can track as well. So all these things we're talking about, whether it's brain volumes with neuroreader or connectomes with fusion tensor imaging or lymphatic system, eventually uh, what I predict is that we're going to have imaging assessments that include all of these data points at different uh, levels along a continuum of a workup that can then be complementarily applied to better understanding what's the most likely cause of cognitive decline in the patient, 
and what are the best biomarkers not only for diagnosis, but for tracking uh, improvements in treatment. Wow. Well, before we get to study some of these tests, you mentioned the glymphatic system is on a circadian rhythm. Does it matter if we get all of our sleep at once at night or if we break it up into naps like a lot of cultures you have siestas? Does it matter if we nap and have less sleep at night? I think the main issue comes down to not necessarily an artificial number of hours, but more, more of are you reaching REM sleep and are you spending the proper amount of time in REM sleep in order to accomplish, you know, that achievement of a circadian rhythm. Um, so I think that's the main thing to look at. And, and there are different ways of achieving REM sleep. Of course, we talk about sleeping, you know, six to eight hours a night. Uh, some other groups like to take uh, naps. And I think that there are different ways to achieve REM sleep. I don't think it's necessarily uh, a one-size-fits-all. Unfortunately, there are also all sorts of ways to disrupt sleep as well. Uh, and so... You know, one thing that I've observed is that individuals, if you go on the iPhone now, you can program it to a night mode so that instead of emitting blue light, which can keep individuals awake and thus disrupt the REM sleep, it can actually uh, kind of uh, program it to more of a, a light red or orange-like light that can be more conducive for promoting uh, sleep. Yes, because the blue light uh, blocks melatonin. So by having the uh, amber light, whatever, toward the end of the night, it might uh, prevent the blocking of melatonin. But one thing about REM is since most of the REM is at the end of the sleep cycle, that would argue against, uh, you know, getting six hours sleep at night and then having a nap during the day. Well, I think that definitely, uh, you know, some people make the argument that, you know, you can achieve REM sleep by catching it in a four-hour stretch, um, but I think that that's not something everybody necessarily has mastery over doing, and so, uh, you know, one of the big challenges is not necessarily falling asleep, but staying asleep. Individuals who can't stay asleep, um, you know, tend to experience more disruptions in REM sleep, uh, and sleep apnea can definitely can contribute to that, which is why that's an important uh, preventable risk factor to address as well. Yes, yeah, so sleep is an important preventable risk factor. Uh, good sleep is one of the factors in most diseases that we want to look at and in inflammation, et cetera, as is uh, exercise and a healthy handling of stress. So let's talk about the different imaging techniques. All right, well, the main most you know, commonly used imaging technique for the assessment of uh, Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline are MRI scans. Um, so that stands for uh, magnetic resonance imaging. We don't use ionizing radiation with MRI, and at least for our assessment for cognitive decline, we don't use contrast agents. Um, so between those factors, MRI is very safe. And with MRI, we can assess the structure of the brain and in doing so, we can assess uh, a couple of things. One, our brain volumes, as well as connections or the neural wiring maps and the connectomes of the brain as well. And I predict that as the science continues to expand in areas of quantification, uh, we'll do a better and better job of, of representing this data for clinical use. Uh, like I said, we already have the ability to do that with NeuroReader, uh, but we can also do that with connectomes in the future as well as we get a better example of kind of what normal looks like, and how to identify abnormal values. Uh, so that's MRI scans. Um, PET scans are another commonly used uh, modality, uh, which especially is exciting in terms of the molecular imaging of amyloid uh, and tau, 
uh, and we can do uh, amyloid PET scans or tau PET scans. Uh, the amyloid uh, PET is actually uh, approved, but it's not uh, necessarily reimbursed by insurance, and so that becomes an issue. Uh, and individuals with Alzheimer's uh, often have amyloid, but individuals who are also cognitively normal can be amyloid positive as well. Um, so it's really only truly beneficial if the scan is completely negative. Uh, if the scan is completely negative of amyloid, then you can be reassured that Alzheimer's isn't a factor. But even if the amyloid scan is positive, you don't necessarily know if somebody has Alzheimer's yet at that point because amyloid takes 20 years to, uh, you know, cause symptoms. So somebody could have a lot of amyloid in their 50s, but then not show any symptoms until their late 60s or early 70s. Um, so then there's actually a large trial called the IDEAS trial, uh, which is designed now to determine the best clinical value of amyloid. And tau agents, which are the newest uh, radio tracer molecular marker, are still mostly investigational. And then, of course, we can look at glucose utilization in the brain with FDG PETs, which is a technique that allows us to see how much glucose cells are using, and neurons that don't use as much glucose tend to be abnormally low uh, in, in Alzheimer's disease. And we can also look at blood flow with techniques like SPECT or single photon emission computer tomography uh, to look at uh, those same changes in Alzheimer's as well. And so that's simply a short overview of the different techniques out there. Uh, and which technique to use depends in part on, of course, what insurance covers. But the most commonly used modality we see in practice is MRI. But it's reimbursed by insurance and pretty easy in terms of access. Well, let's look at a couple of other causes of Alzheimer's. I mean, CTE with this encephalitis, I mean, there's one study that 110 out of 111 deceased NFL players had this. Isn't that alarming? Obviously, it's due to head trauma. Right. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy was uh, described by Bennett Amalo at the University of Pittsburgh around 2005 in a former deceased football player uh, named Mike Webster, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, a lot of this is actually detailed in the movie Concussion uh, with Will Smith, and that was actually a pretty good depiction of a lot of, uh, of the discovery aspects of the events. And after that was published, then there was a large brain bank established at Boston University run by Dr. Ann McKee, which then collected the large numbers of deceased NFL football player brains that were then summarized in that publication you mentioned of the 110 individuals, all but one having CTE. And, and when we talk about CTE, what we're specifically referring to neuropathologically is abnormal tau. So CTE is not an amyloidosis. It's not an amyloid depositing disorder, but it's a tauopathy. And the location of the tau is different than an Alzheimer's disease. In Alzheimer's disease, the tau tends to deposit earliest in the hippocampus. But in CTE, the deposition of tau in the football players is in the brainstem. One of the reasons it's thought to be the case is because when a football player hits another football player in practice or in gameplay, the triangulation of that force from the impact occurs along an axis that's directed through the brainstem. That's why it's believed the brainstem is preferentially affected by CTE compared to other parts of the brain that are affected in Alzheimer's disease. And the other aspect of CTE that distinguishes it from Alzheimer's disease is, you know, I described how you can see amyloid in Alzheimer's disease as early as in the early 50s. 
But what they found is that you can also have CTE neuropathological changes that are very severe in one's 20s. And so Aaron Hernandez, who played for the New England Patriots, um, who was engaging in criminal behavior and convicted for murder, after he died, um, they found that he had CTE of a stage three out of four uh, in his brain, and he was only 27 when he died. Uh, and so one of the implications of, the, of this research is that, you know, CTE can strike at very young age groups exposed to these high trauma uh, practices, specifically in the case of football. Would you, if you, would you let your child play football? And if you did, what protective measures can be made other than helmets? And if he's on the progression toward this disease, what can you do to at least slow the progression? Uh, you know, it's funny. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, which is, of course, prime you know football country, and a lot of people you know play football, uh, you know, in high school and and you know as part of these different you know smaller league teams. And my parents wouldn't let me play football because they were concerned about the head trauma impacts, even though nobody was talking about CTE back then. So it's I think in the nineties, uh, nobody was mentioning that nobody was even conceiving of that. And so I would not allow my child to expose themselves to any situation where they might, um, have potential, uh, head trauma. So football is an obvious example, but so is hockey. Um, so are contact sports, uh, even in soccer, if they were going to play that. Um, so I played soccer, but I would never head the ball. Uh, they actually found in one study done with diffusion tensor imaging that soccer players who head the ball have more abnormal connections uh, than individuals who don't head the ball. Um, and so, you know, myself growing up, I commonly ran track and cross country and I played lots of tennis, um, which, uh, you know, there's not that much of a burden of contact in those sports. So that that's my take on what to do if individuals are going to make decisions regarding what sports to play. Uh, I think it's also important to emphasize, too, that there are many other causes of head trauma besides sports. Uh, motor vehicle collisions are by far the most common cause uh, in our society. And so just because we don't um, play contact sports doesn't necessarily make any of us immune to possible head trauma from other causes. And, of course, in the veteran population, blast exposure is an important source of traumatic brain injury as well. Um, so, you know, while the football gets a lot of press, uh, you know, football players at, at the national level are actually a minority of individuals who suffer from, from traumatic brain injury. Um, so I think that that's important to kind of uh, to put that out there. And in terms of protection um, from, uh, you know, the actual injuries, you know, the rules of play are important, uh, so I think that matters. Uh, actually, it was 100 years ago uh, when, or actually over 100 years ago, when Teddy Roosevelt um, established the NCAA or encouraged the establishments of the NCAA in part because I think in one year, I think in 1904, almost 100 players died from football player, I feel like they actually died uh, from the traumatic effects. So if you have uh, a brain injury, if you have a brain injury from a motor vehicle accident, what can you do to help nurture your brain and prevent any progression toward a bad end? 
Well, a lot of what can help with the Alzheimer's prevention, I believe, can be useful uh, in individuals who've suffered from head trauma. So, for example, you know, in uh, we had one uh, former high school football player uh, who we saw as a patient at UCLA who had experienced hundreds of of head impacts during just his high school career. I think by by his estimate and others' estimates, it was close to 900 impacts that he had experienced. And he had at least one episode of loss of consciousness that lasted almost a full minute. Um, and he experienced the, uh, the post-concussive symptoms, but he didn't experience the cognitive decline until later in his life, right? in his kind of late 40s to his early 50s. And uh, what he did to help in terms of his uh, progression was he actually, uh, you know, uh, ate a healthier diet, lots of omega-3s, started doing a lot more aerobic exercise. He liked playing online chess, which he claimed helped jumpstart his brain. So there may be uh, an allusion to a potential future role for, for gaming program. And, you know, you have all these different companies like antiaginggames.com and Lumosity that are claiming that they have a benefit. And that's certainly worthy of future investigation. Uh, and we actually measured his brain volumes with NeuroReader four years apart. And we found that while his frontal lobes went down um, by about 4%, his hippocampal volume went up by 5%. Mm-hmm. And even though, even though he had some attentional difficulties, which goes back to potential frontal lobe problems, his actual memory scores were still mid-level uh, percentiles. So that suggests that even if somebody had suffered from head trauma, uh, there can be a benefit in terms of these uh, preventative approaches that we can apply in Alzheimer's disease to the head trauma community as well. Um, and so I think, you know, brain rehabilitation or cognitive rehabilitation may end up becoming as common a practice as physical therapy is uh, for well, other causes of sports injury. I've got a question about multi-infarct dementia. Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the UK, uh, had multi-infarct dementia. With all the resources available, was there nothing they could do to slow down the impact of this vascular disease? Well, before one gets multi-infarct dementia, they have other signs of vascular disease in their brain. And so what we see in the reading room, and I see it every day when I'm looking at scans, are what are called uh, white matter spots or T2 or flare hyperintensity. So T2 and flare refer to different MRI sequences we use to better visualize pathology in the brain, particularly in the white matter. And when we see bright spots, these often represent areas of abnormal white matter. And most commonly in the elderly population, we can observe that from chronic vascular disease. Uh, and that's important because the more white matter hyperintensities one has in the brain, the more concurrent gray matter atrophy is happening as well. That's actually been published in a paper that I wrote up uh, using over 740 cognitively normal subjects uh, where we correlated white matter hyperintensities and found that there were large areas of gray matter atrophy as a function of these white matter hyperintensities. Um, so it's affecting the white matter negatively is also going to be affecting the gray matter as well. Now, if one can intervene early enough in that process, um, then that can reduce the burden of vascular disease on the brain. But if that doesn't happen, then you get the multiple infarcts, you get the loss of volumes more quickly, 
Um, there's less reserve to compensate, and then that can lead to what we conceive of as multi-infarct dementia that affected, uh, you know, Prime Minister Thatcher. Uh, and so I think this all goes back to earlier identification. So it's hard to apply preventative neuroradiology uh, in an individual who's that late in their disease course. But somebody who has white matter hyperintensity and high blood pressure, there should be a discussion between the physician and the patient about controlling the vascular disease. And those white matter hyperintensities shouldn't necessarily be written off. So how would they do that? If Suppose you get some white matter hyperintensities on the MRI. Uh, how would the patient do that? Well, the most common mechanism is better control of blood pressure because that's the mechanism proposed for these white matter hyperintensities. They're thought to be due to chronic uh, you know, stenosis or necrosis of these small arteries penetrating down into the white matter. And when those arteries are essentially closed off, that can lead to these white matter hyperintensities that originally present as kind of silent strokes. Uh, and in that case, what ends up happening is if we can control the blood pressure better, um, you know, then that can reduce the risk of that happening. On the other hand, individuals rarely have just high blood pressure the matter with them. And so looking at the diabetes factor uh, and, of course, cholesterol also becomes very important as well over time, as well as any sort of coronary artery disease that's taking place. Uh, and so I think uh, there has to be a comprehensive approach in these cases. So what is the role of cholesterol in this process? Can it be protective? You know, there's been some data suggesting that if individuals have extremely low cholesterol, like abnormally low cholesterol, that that actually is associated with an increased risk of depression. Um, and, you know, by the same token, uh, high cholesterol, you know, has been traditionally targeted for, um, you know, cardiovascular control. But, you know, in a famous anecdote, um, the former President Eisenhower, he had, uh, you know, nine heart attacks near the end of his life, despite an aggressively low-fat diet. So I think the actual mechanism of cholesterol is still being better understood. We do know that cholesterol incorporates into cell membranes, including neuronal cell membranes. And so, a certain amount of cholesterol is, is definitely important for optimal brain health. Um, but I think right now the current standard of care is to control high cholesterol with some sort of cholesterol-lowering medication like a statin. Well, I think we're coming close to an end. But as I recall, the Framingham study showed the longest living people had the cholesterols over 200. So I imagine there's a lot of fats and like raw butter and coconut butter, et cetera, we can look at. So in the last two minutes we have, would you like to summarize some important points and uh, tell people how to get a hold of you if you wish? Of course. So preventative neuroradiology describes the application of quantitative uh, imaging tools for identifying different causes of cognitive decline, not just Alzheimer's disease, and particularly causes of cognitive decline that are addressable or else preventable. And the role of neuroradiology is growing because neuroradiologists have an understanding of the imaging techniques and quantitative tools necessary to extract this actionable information. Uh, and so, in addition to structural MRI, we're also developing connectome work at UCSF and, and leveraging these tools for better outcomes and doing this in collaboration with neurologists and psychiatrists, individuals who address cognitive health needs, is also very important as well. 
And so, so there we have it, folks. Um, we could, uh, consult with your clinician, your physician, and you could. This is another pathway to assess how you're doing in your cognitive path, and also uh, do your own research so you can help yourself and help others and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.